after a five-year hiatus, Culture Drop is back. Buckle up, as in this episode, we're going to cover the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, Springsteen, U2, The Clash, The Smiths, Johnny Marr, The Pistols, P.I.L., The Screaming Blue Messiahs, Dr. Feelgood, Kate Bush, Pink Floyd, The Wizard of Oz, The Big Music, and last but not least, Minneapolis's own The Replacements. I'm Jed, and I'm here once again with my co-host, author, and cultural critic, William Devitt. This is part one of a two-part conversation, so enjoy the episode. We'll see you on the other side and catch you in part two. Yeah, so what do you think about the new Stones album? Like, what do you think about the production of it? Uh, it sounds very modern. Yeah. Uh, I I like it because it sounds like, get this, a Rolling Stones record. Uh, you know, <laughs> they've never released this album. That doesn't sound like the Stones, for better or worse. You know, yeah, and, and I guess, you know, if I think of songs like Undercover of the Night, I mean, they've always tried to be kind of au courant in terms of, you know, sure. their, their sounds, right? Sure, sure. I, I mean, f- further back than that, you know, go... Uh, Disco. You know, uh, further back than that. Why do you think they got Nick Taylor in the band? Sure. Uh, because that's what was going on. It was fancy lead guitar players going doodly, 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 and playing the scales. So, I just, I... I, I still, I enjoy that. I think about half the songs to me are like, really great and half are good i don't think there's anything bad on there um yeah i wish it wasn't so you know when when you're as big as them it's like do you really need to try to sound super contemporary i mean it could have been a little less reverb be a little less compressed just make it sound cool but you know they're doing they can do whatever they want and it's still great I, I don't know what you're listening to it on. You you got obviously have you know real real sound system. All I have is my you know twenty five year old thirty year old whatever Bose clock radio. So that's what and that that you know by the nature of the the Bose waves patented sound system is very compressed, very mid rangey. It's got yeah. a good bass response, not much high. Yeah. So that's what I'm listening to it on. Well, that's what it's designed for. It's a very mid-rangey sounding right. album. Most, most of that brick wall, you know, compressed stuff is designed for, you know, earbuds and, yeah. you know, streaming and, you know, crappy. That's why the people are actually making records and mastering them. And, you know, they sound like that, uh, which means there's a lot of crappy sounding records, you know, out there. Uh, even if the music is actually good, you know, crappy sounding brick walled remastered yeah and that's actually i don't know if you ever like get into looking at waveforms and stuff but they call that a brick wall when there's like no dynamics in the waveform and that's actually one of the criticisms of the new beatles song is it's so compressed there's almost no dynamics going on yeah i haven't seen i'm familiar with waveforms i've seen quite a few years yeah 
Now, I've only heard it on crappy computer speakers. And, yeah. oh my, I should say, the video is wonderful. For which one? For now and then. Wasn't that cool? I thought I, so too. I, it made me appreciate the song much more, actually. Me too, me too. Um, it's whimsical, it's everything the Beatles are. It's actually a little too whimsical, but it's, it's heartfelt, moving too, uh, because you know, half of those guys are dead. Yeah, and if you think about it, you know, he was trying to um, walk a very difficult tightrope. You know, you've got John doing these super goofy things that he, he flew in from the Hello Goodbye video. But somehow, like, it kind of worked and, like, because it's kind of a, it could be a sad song. And, like, you feel just nostalgia, you feel this nostalgia to see John there conducting the, the orchestra, he just did it in a very deft way, I thought. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the song's not really, it's a little syrupy. Yeah. Black Beatles, you know. <laughs> God help us, they've been known to be syrupy before in the past, Long and Winding Road or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, it's not just about the Beatles, it's about, you know, us. You That's know? right. Um, did Peter Jackson, did he direct it? Yeah, it was the first video he ever did, and he was kind of hesitant, but that's why it's so, you know, creative. Okay, so what's the deal with Jackson getting, I believe, co-reissue uh, producer credits with Giles Martin on uh, the, the, you know, the Red and Blue compilations, which I think are coming out, what, Friday or something like that? Those already came out. I don't know. He didn't get co. I'm sure he didn't get co-producer on there, unless you know something I don't know. I mean, he could, to the extent that you know they used his technology to um, demix uh, certain tracks where they didn't have, um, you know, because in the day they had to mix everything down to like four or eight tracks. So you've got certain instruments combined with other instruments, and they couldn't break it down to like just the bass track, just the piano right. track, and he invented this technology working on the the, the Get Back uh, um, movie, yeah, right. where, where he's able to isolate like vocal, you know, the, the conversations they were having when there was music in the background. You couldn't hear what they were saying, right? And then they were able to use that last year on the Revolver LP to demix the bass from the guitar, so you could mix it more cleanly. So they were able to do that with a lot of the songs on the Blue album, which so they sound a really cleaner than they ever have before. So he may have gotten some production on there for that reason. Hmm. Now, I don't get why the AI thing is so necessary, even for now and then. Um, well, hear me out. There are guys on the internet, like this one, you know, Clash Forum, he's a, you know, forum, who, in their, you know, their little bed sits, you know, over in, you know, Reading, England, uh, um, are able to, with whatever software they have, pull off stuff like that. On, you know, straight, you know, audience bootlegs, whatever. Pull vocals out. One yeah. guy I did it with the Clashes, you know, well, the Phony Clash, uh, right. cut the crap album. Yeah. Which is, you know, just, it's just crazy murk. You know, the record, you know, and the vocals are buried and it's all this gunk and, yeah. You know, football, terrace, you know, vocals, you know, just layered on. 
and people are able to, you know, pull Strummer's vocals out and yes. to some extent isolate some of the instruments. And uh, these are just guys, just you know, I mean, they're rabid music fans. Yeah. But with their technology, so I don't get why the Jackson and his whole AI trip. It was so necessary. I, you know, yeah. I haven't heard the original or even the, you know, the early '90s version. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple parts to that. Um, the reason it was necessary on that demo is there are kind of three parts to his original demo. One was he was singing. The other part was he was playing piano. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't playing it like, okay, now the red light is on. I got to play really precisely. Yeah, he was just doing a demo, right? Yeah. So it's a little bit sloppy. Um, and the other was he had like the TV on. And, and there was like some like 60 cycle hum buzz noise because he was just recording. So to, to be able to, for the Beatles to fly his vocal in, they had to isolate the room noise, the TV and the piano. They'd isolate his vocal separate from that. So that and so they didn't have the technology to do that in the 90s that they do now. But to your point. I don't know why they're making such a big deal that Peter Jackson invented it because you, you and I can go to any website just like your friends did the clash for Cut the Crap and we can say isolate this vocal and I can do it for free in like two seconds. That's AI, but it's not like Peter Jackson is the one who invented that. Yeah, I mean, and you've been to, you know, engineering school audio for audio. I'm talking about guys who, you know, don't have any background. They only have you know software, and they learn how to use them. And just you know, regular guy music yeah. fans. Um, at the beginning of the the song, you know, in the video of now and then, you hear just you know, John's voice. Um, I think I have heard some of you, know, you know, just the original tape with just him and the piano. And yeah, I obviously I'm crappy. Speakers, I didn't pick up on the TV in the background, uh, and maybe their first pass at it in, in the '90s, they were able to do something, you know, with the track. So I don't, I don't know which generation of John's tape I was actually hearing. Yeah, well, that was the other interesting part of the story. I actually heard um, this kind of BBC documentary about making it, which I'll I'll send to you, um, and they said that. Yeah, the, the version that Yoko gave to the Beatles was not the original tape. It was like a copy of the tape. So it was already degraded. Oh, okay, yeah. And then, you know, they used the technology they had in the 90s to try to, like, you know, boost the treble, the treble and the EQ of his vocal range. But they couldn't separate out the piano. So they realized, like Peter Jackson realized, hey, you know, now it's 2023. Uh, I should talk to Sean Lennon and see if he can find us the original copy and maybe send us a digital copy of that. And sure enough, he found that. So when they're doing it now in 2023, they're able to start with a much better quality copy than just going back to what they had in the 90s. So that yeah. also helped, helped make it happen, much sound much better. Yeah, there was a short, like, 15-minute mini documentary. I think I sent to you as well and yeah email, uh, uh, you know Paul narrates it um, which you know covered that and they, they talked to, to Sean Sean Leonard. Um 
Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking modern day, like, you know, the aughts, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking back as far as the 90s, which, you know, doesn't seem that long ago to me, but in the world of technology, it's, it's literally a whole other century, figure, you know, literally and figuratively, as far as the element, technological advance. Yeah, and the way time unfolds is just crazy. I mean, the distance from when the Beatles broke up in 1970 to when Anthology came out in 95, that was like 25 years. Yeah. And the time from then to now is 28 years. Uh, it's, is that weird? I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. you know, it's like that psychedelic verse song, you know, the ghost in you, inside you, the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of, kind of feeling. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, crazy stuff. Um, so, have you got the the new uh, red and blue compilations? I don't have the phys. I think I'll ask for at least one of them for a Christmas present for Lisa. I've listened. I've been listening to them on Spotify. Here's the the issue. Um, those, you know, there's a difference between remastering and remixing, right? Remastering is just, yeah. right? Yeah. So they right. they did an incredible job remastering in 2009 the entire Beatles catalog. Right. Um, is, he's a mixer, so he's actually remixing every album. So he's been, um, you know, year by year, they've been kind of, you know, remixing albums. The later albums, okay? Okay, like Revolver, they did that, right? Like, from Revolver on now, we've got, like, oh, every, okay. everything has been pretty much remixed. So, like, on the Red and Blue albums, um, almost everything on the Red album is newly remixed because he hadn't remixed those before. And 90% of everything on the Blue album, 6770, has already been remixed because that's been going on the last few years. And it really is a game changer with uh, with this isolating technology where you can isolate the instruments and, um, you know, you can change the dynamics of, you know, Ringo's drums and Paul's bass and you can recenter. Like, they had this crazy, when stereo was new, you know, everything is panned totally left or totally right. And um, while I thought that was really cool at the time, you know, to get the drums more in the, the center is so much more powerful. Oh, I, I hated those mixes. I yeah, really so that's the kind of things he can, um, you know, keep the spirit of the mix, but it just sounds so much better now where you can put the drums a little bit more in the center and get the power of, like, what you had from mono in terms of the drums. Right. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that's coming through now. But, 
I thought they've been releasing mono versions of the albums as well for the last, you know, whatever, 20 years. Uh, for some of them, they have, like, Sgt. Pepper, they did. But no one is really listening to those. I mean, that's just strictly for collectors. You know, if you go on Spotify, you're not going to find the mono version of it, for example. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see that. Uh, I, I think I, I read a thing, some guy, it was talking about John back in the day. And John sang, like, in 67, that he hated stereo. And his reason for hating it was, it meant that you had to pay attention to yet another speaker to get the full, you know, the full sonic impact. <laughs> uh, it's just, it sounds like something John being cheeky, you know. Uh, sounds like something amusing. Yeah, that's like a, other Beatles have said, I've heard George Harrison say something similar that all they really cared about was the mono because that's what most people were listening to at the time and mm -hmm. that's the supposedly the mix like they spent the most time you know, listening to in the sound booth, and then they just left and let the engineers quickly slap together a stereo. But um, recent Beatles scholarship has shown that some of that is a myth, and that they actually did spend a lot of time uh, the engineers on the stereo mixes. And um, yeah. you know, as a kid, I just loved the stereo mixes. And um, I have to say, like the red and the blue albums, which have pretty much been forgotten that has a special place for me because that was those came out in 73 and that was right around the time I got into the Beatles. Those are the first Beatle albums I ever heard and they had the lyrics printed in the inside and those are the ones that I just listened to over and over when I first got into the Beatles. Yeah, I, I, I think those, the red and the blue are, you know, their version, the Beatles version, of, for like say the Stones Hot Rocks, you know, volume one, which came out in 71, then volume two. Uh, right. In, and there's, the, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually the interesting Alan Klein collect, um, connection, that he was the one responsible for those Stones compilations yeah. uh, to make money. And then the reason this Beatles one came along is there were really loose copyright laws in the early 70s and some other company was illegally like in new jersey was selling like some beatles greatest hits thing so to preempt that klein put together this blue and this red compilation so the beatles could capitalize on on this and preempt that put that other company out of business yeah 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 sure um it's kind of like you know the live record boom you know which all was done to counteract, you know, bootlegging, which had just yeah. been, you know, coming to vogue. You know, Stones get EIS out. And, uh, Hot Rocks. Huh? Hot Rocks, wasn't that a name of a Stones compilation? Well, that's a compilation. I was talking about, like, live albums. Yeah, yeah. It was a similar thing with around the same time. Right. Uh, bands releasing live albums. Uh, right, right. To counteract uh, actual bootleggers. So, you know, like Bob Dylan's little white wonder uh, yeah that was supposedly like the first kind of really like real bootleg right um i i, I what he released what self-portrait or uh, some album to counteract that was of course everybody hated back in the day self-portrait or... I, I hated that when i first heard it and now like i don't know if you've listened to it recently it's actually quite charming No, I just, no, but I mean, just the actual album. 
self-portrait has got I, I like it well enough yeah. just in its original form I didn't actually listen to it I don't think until probably like uh, the late 80s <laughs> Um, yeah, the same. I don't think I listened to it till because I heard it was so terrible. But then there's the, the songs in there like Wigwam that are really cool, actually. I uh, wasn't uh, the Quinn the Eskimo, you know, from the the basement tapes with the band uh, originally on, on self portrait, wasn't it? Um, maybe. Um, I think that may have been on. Um, well, see, now you're talking about the basement tapes. I think you're talking about, you know, because that was put out to kind of preempt. You, you're right. The, see, the Great White Wonder, um, I actually heard someone talking about this today because um, I was watching some videos about the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. And this guy was talking about the Great White Wonder, which is a, a half, like, early Minnesota demos and the basement tapes. So... That, that, I think Quinn the Eskimo was on there. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's right. That's right, because the actual basement tapes didn't come out until 75. Right. Uh, and, of course, that was heavily overdubbed by, you know, and tweaked by Robbie Robertson. Uh, half of it was, you know... Half of it was band music, yeah. The, the band, you know, I'll take from, from their Big Pink sessions. Uh, um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh... What about the Stones video? Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, you know, like the Peter Jackson thing for uh, now and then. Clearly, it's a nod to like you know the video for Angry, where they have to, you know they're driving around L.A. with all the billboards, you know, with little clips of them of the Stones live through through the years through the decades. Yeah. Uh, and apparently that was a big AI thing. Uh, where they had to, you know, get, you know, clips from the Stones playing live, you know, just yeah. a couple seconds at a time, but sync it up so, like, you know, Mick, it looked like he was singing the words of the actual song in real time, you know, in the song Angry. Um, yeah. See, I don't think it was, I don't think it was, I, I doubt it was a nod to that because that, the Beatles were originally supposed to release this, like, several months ago. Uh, and I assume the video was ready to go, and then it conflicted with like Taylor Swift's 1989, and then it probably conflicted with the Stones. Right, everything conflicted with Taylor Swift. Uh, Which well, is yeah, hilarious. The video came out what September, mid September. I think. Yeah, but uh, so I mean, I could see them both concurrently. You know, just because they're kind of you know 60s bands, they would have been thinking along the same track of you know. Need to integrate, but I know I, your point is well taken that they both had to, like when they showed like George strumming or something, the strums had to be in time with right. the song, or you know when John opened his mouth like he was about to sing a line, just like the Mick Billboard stuff. Right, right. I mean, you can do that stuff so precisely. You know, you can't do that with you know a guy with a razor blade and you know sixteen millimeter film, uh, you know, or whatever. You know. You yeah. That I'm sure is AI, you know, contributed. Uh, but it would be funny if, for a change, it, per the old myth of you know the Stones copying everything the Beatles did. Right. Ah, the Beatles actually copied the Stones by a couple months. 
Jay. No, I, I'm not going to give you that one. Good, nice try. But what about the girl? What do you think about the girl in the car as the kind of the center motif of the song? by the numbers yeah. they released I think one or two from you know the blues album uh, Blue and Lonesome with yeah. you know, a different girl uh, from kind of famous I'd never heard of this girl and, and that's right that was a similar kind of idea wasn't it she was, she was like walking through the streets no she was driving in a car she was driving also okay yeah yeah driving I have to go back and watch those muscle you know they're fun and just who doesn't like looking at pretty girls even other Pretty girls, like looking at pretty girls. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it's not, you know, that's just the Stones stock and trade. Is, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I mean, that's what the Stones do, is nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah, right. It's not, you know, I and mean, they're not like spring chickens, so why not have, you know, a pretty girl in there mixed with some cool vintage Stones from different eras? That worked for me. Right. Like my brother Chris, and he said, well, he didn't like the video. Uh, he, he didn't appreciate the billboards, uh, you know, thing. And he thought, well, why isn't there anything contemporary in it? No. And maybe that's the point. Um, is that they should, maybe they, meaning Mick, uh, pay homage to, to age and mortality a little more, you know, now that they're getting on, especially with Charlie dying. Uh, yeah. And actually, you know, show them. Okay. Yeah, and they still, I mean, they still look really cool. You know, they could have put them, you know, a little bit more contemporary stones on the billboards mixed with all that stuff. That that probably would have made it a little bit more current. Yeah, and there are some kind of, you know, they've been around 60 years. I mean, there is some current stuff, like some shots of Charlie from probably 2003 or something yeah. like that. I mean, the way Mick moves and works the stage at this age is incredible, still. Right, right. And, and that's great. You know, he's Peter Pan, and he's got, you know, he's a health freak, and he's got good jeans and all that stuff. Good jeans, literally, and the trousers he wears. <laughs> yeah, um, nice one. But I, I would like to see, you know, a video with, you know, and like they don't really wear makeup on stage anymore, I think. Contrast that with, say, now and then, 
you know, the new Beatles track, well, they are sort of embracing mortality, but it's more, you know, it's not literally, it's more of a nostalgic thing. You know, they were embracing the Beatles and Beatledom and be- the Beatles fans and just people in general, but it's... Yeah, but actually to that point, you know, they were, Paul and Ringo were not afraid to show themselves in 2023 versions. Right, right. I think that's great. Which was and cool. Course, yeah, and, you know, they they, were, they both still look really good. Uh, although occasionally in some pictures, Paul does, he's starting to look like somebody's grandma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know, say, say, you could say the same, similar things about, you know, Keith or even, you know, Mick or, you know, or even Woody. And, you know, God help us, you know, Charlie was looking like somebody's grandpa in 1970, you know, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, apparently and, Ringo is like this crazy health nut, like he only eats like blueberries and nuts and he, he is on like on a really strict diet. Yeah, he looks great, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah, of course he dyes his hair. If Paul isn't, I, I don't think Paul doesn't dye his hair anymore no. at all. No, he looks, um, and he looks, his hair looks really cool. Yeah, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with dyeing your hair, you know, uh, you know. Uh, did you hear the story about one of the, I think she was a viola player in the orchestra for the recording? Yeah, the one who passed away and didn't know she played on a Beatles song? Yeah, yeah, isn't that, it's sad and, and wistful and, uh, but, but lovely as well. Yeah. Interesting. He knew how historic it was. That, yeah, well, apparently he's that kind of guy anyway. He's, right. Know, really lovely guy. Uh, but, but speaking of, like, um, the song, like, you know, keeping it secret and stuff, like, one little uh, kind of known thing among Beatles fans is, like, this this Now and Then demo. Like, Beatles fans knew, like, the Beatles had partially worked on it. And over the years... People, because John demo, John Lennon's demo had been circulating, so there have been versions for years on YouTube of people just Im- doing their own imagined versions of what this 
would okay. sound like. Sure, I'm sure, sure. And in fact, there was even a whole other section of the song, they call it the I Don't Want to Lose You section, that they didn't even include in the demo, which is slightly, or in the final version, which is slightly controversial, because it was a whole other, gave the song a whole different feel. Uh, they like chose... A, a bridge? Or yeah, like a bridge, and they chose not to include that. Oh. Um, you know, and that may have been because, you know, his singing wasn't quite as strong, or it would have just changed the feel of the song. But, um, it, you know, so there's already versions out there where people are adding, like, that missing section to the, the version that came out. I think good for them. Absolutely. I think good on them. You know, uh, hopefully they're not trying to make money off it. But, uh, you know, that's what, you know, the, the, being a fan is about, you know. I mean, that's right. No, they're not making money off it. It's just people just love to sure. be immersed in the music. Sure. You know, mashups, that was the thing. I mean, exactly. You know, Brilliant stuff. Prince's Sign of the Times mashed up with Kate Bush's uh, Running Up the Hill. Running Up the Hill. Yeah, whatever. Um, Is that a thing? Well, it was. I don't know. I saw it on YouTube. Uh, a collection of Kate Bush mashups. Uh, uh, may have actually uh, burned it up to a CD. Uh, uh, yeah, it was great. They they matched perfectly. You know the BPMs. And, that's interesting. That's like, uh, you know about the Beatles' Grey album where Danger Mouse uh, mixed, like, um, he only used sounds from, like, the Beatles' White album as uh, background music and samples, and then he put over a Jay-Z album uh, raps over the top of it. Yeah, I remember hearing you and, and David talking about Yeah, yeah, that. that was quite good, actually, too, because he's only using Beatles music as... For the beats and samples, I think that stuff's wonderful. And yeah. actually, stuff like that—if it actually is, you know, a big, you know, a big name producer, like you know, could actually sell it, make money, you know. Remember the Beatles' Love album, which you know, I think Giles Giles Martin—that was his first. Yeah, that was really cool, actually. I thought it was wonderful. I remember hearing we were at, at work, me and David, paying this apartment, and. Uh, uh, I hadn't heard it before. I was having a rough day for some reason. I was just down the dumps and struggling with the job. And, and uh, Hey Jude came out and the fade out of it. And it just, you know, the vocals. It just, just fades to just vocals. And it just, I just broke down. It just brought me to tears. Yeah. Wow. It's just, you know. Yeah, that's the power of... The song, like, how could the song get any better? Well, just did, you know. Yeah, well, you just put your finger on, you know, why that music is so timeless, you know, they can just pull that out of people and they make it their own. Chris brought a brother Chris a couple months ago a bunch of cassettes that 
he'd had through the years of you know various sessions with various bands and just you know jams and sessions uh, we'd had and recorded and one of them is uh it's just uh, me and matt and uh like a guitar player played in a couple bands with uh doing a, like coverage project and we played really well and you know really good selections so there's only like seven songs but one of them we do uh, uh springsteen's glory days and I had a bootleg back in the day on vinyl, really muffled, low key. So apparently, it's you know, very well known and much better quality uh, uh, amongst you know Bruce fans these days. But Glorious is an extra verse in there right before the breakdown, where you know going down to the well tonight. I'm going. There's an extra verse in there. My old man worked 20 years on the line, and they let him go. Anyway, I'm singing the song. And I, I can hear me on mic saying, Mitch, let me sing this, let me sing this this track. And so, and we play it per, just flawlessly. And Bruce has never done that. He's never released it, like on the tracks, you know, for CD. Now, maybe he'll, uh, eventually he's going to release a Born in the USA box set, you know. Yeah. You know, live shows. And, I mean, he's got to do it eventually. Um, and, you know, he'll probably, if he's smart, you know, have that version. It's the same tat, the same take, the same track. It's, you know, just the one track. You know, take most of that album was, you know, no overdubs and you know, just early takes of Born in the USA. It's spruced up by Bob Clearmountain's, you know, fancy mixing and you know, sparkling '80s sound. Uh, but that's a thing. I whenever I hear that, you always hear Glory Days on the radio. You know, got the supermarket or whatever. And it's like, why did he leave that verse out? Is there something he doesn't like about it? You know, if Bruce doesn't, you know, like, hmm. What, you know. what is it? Is there something, what is that verse about? It's about an old guy. The, the, the verse goes, just like, it's the same cadence, it's the same music, it's all the, all the other verses. It goes, my old man worked 20 years on the line, and they let him go. Now everywhere he goes out looking for work, they're just telling him, sir, you're too old. I was nine years old. He was working at the Wachuchin Ford plant assembly line. Now he just sits on a stool down at the Legion Hall. But I can tell you what's on his mind. Glory days. Well, they ain't coming back. Glory days. Like he ain't never ever had glory days, glory days. And then the breakdown, the thing going down to the well, comes after that. Okay. Um, so they edited that out uh, of the master take, you know, obviously in 1984. Yeah. And like, to me, it's a very, very dark and a very moving yeah. uh, uh, lyric, you know, because. The song itself is a, it's a very it's a bummer song, but it sounds like a party song, you know. Glory yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about that album. It's like the thematically, it's very close to Nebraska, but it's got this up up uh, energy to it, and almost every song in there was a single. Right, right, exactly, and so something about that must have like cut. I don't. Well, Bruce, you know, is not the best. Uh, 
critic of his own work. You know, he's left stuff off, you know, all through his career that's, you know, as good or even better than, uh, you know. Yeah, just like like Dylan. I mean, he's left off things that people consider masterpieces of different albums. He just has no clue what, or maybe he just doesn't care. Who knows why? Well, Bob's weird. I think, you know, he's, or just to be contrary. He's well, like, he's like got Asperger's apparently, you know, yeah. somewhere on the autism spectrum. And, you know, he can't, he's incapable of doing a take the same way twice. Right. And apparently it's, it's real. It's not just, you know, it's actually literally. He's either incapable or he just will not. And he's always been this way. Yeah. You know, from the basement tapes, you know, I've got the whole box, you know, eight CD, whatever, just box set, you know, the complete. Uh, basement taste. And uh, he just, you know, can't or won't do songs uh, the same way, with the same lyric, the same phrasing, the band, the music, the structures often change. Well, some people just can't. Like, that's actually an interesting topic. I know Ringo has said, like, he has, you know, he every time he does a take, he's listening to, like, the music and the singer. And, like, if you asked him to double his part, he said, I could never do that, because every time it's just... A one-off. That, yeah, I wonder if Professor Bono said that years ago. He said, you know, one of the, you know, things about Edge, you know, and Edge obviously, you know, has a great voice, you know, great Welsh, you know, classic singer, uh, uh, is that Bono's claimed, I can't double-track my own vocals. Oh, interesting. I find it hard to believe, um, but, you know, that's part of the, you know, the, the myth-making, uh, and so he always had, you know, Edge to do uh, the harmonies and uh, and backing vocals. And I wonder if that's true or not. I mean, maybe it was, you know, people like that that just can't do it. But, you know, Bono's a pretty serious musician. Dylan's a pretty serious musician, you know. Um, you know but maybe some people just, they can be great, but they have blind spots. Yeah. And uh, just, uh, you know. Van Morrison's another one. Supposedly, he, um, I take everything Van ever says, you know, but the grand's a big, a big tumbler yeah. full of salt. Yeah, take a huge tumbler full before you yeah, listen right, to Van Morrison. Right, even more Dylan, yeah. Uh, yeah, supposedly he can't do takes the same way, and that's not true because I've heard, you know, I've heard takes that sound very similar uh, through the years of him. Johnny Green's, uh, you know, a ride of our own. Oh yeah, what'd you think of that? Uh, I was a little disappointed. Okay, it's been a while since I read it. Yeah, it was very, very easy, very you know, quick read. Yeah. Uh, and I heard that it was really good, one of the best, you know, Clash memoirs because the guy was actually there yeah. and stuff. And uh, I don't think I liked Johnny Green very much. I always thought, like he. Playing himself in the film Rude, but I always thought, wow, he seems like a really cool guy. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen interviews with him since then. Yeah. You know, since he got sober, I didn't even know, you know, maybe he was into junk, you know. Uh, and he's like, he moved to the States, to Texas, and he's got like some weird degree in like Arabic studies or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it just seems like oafish, like an oaf. And 
comes across in the book, and I, I know it's not him really writing, it's, you know, ghost-written. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't like his voice. Oh, interesting. You know? Even, you know, he spoke, he, it's very, oh, it's authentic, you know, South London and all that. Maybe the like ghostwriter just got the tone wrong. Maybe, maybe. As I say, I have seen interviews, you know, in recent years of Johnny, and I sort of don't like his, his manner. Oh, okay. Um, it's like, not like he's putting anything on. Yeah. You know, airs or, you know, pretending to be, oh, you're self-London, what's in class? But I just don't like the tone. And what, do you, what don't you like about it? Do you think he's just full of himself because of the Clash connection, or what? No, no, not so much. No, I can't. Um, he just seems, I don't know, oafish. He's just needlessly... Like clueless? Uh, huh? Well, not, clueless, did you say? Yeah. No, no. Well, maybe a little thick, but I, clearly he's a bright guy, but yeah. I could see, I'm guessing Mick Jones is never going to write you know, his autobiography. This, it would be wonderful. But, you know, Mick has, you know, he's genuine, working class, self-London, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, his dad was a cab driver, former soldier, Welsh soldier. Whatever, you know, Simonon too, you know, same deal. His dad was a cab driver as well, and, uh, you know, cell phone. And then, um, hey, by the way, have you heard that new project, new Paul Simonon project with that w woman? I've heard a couple tracks which seemed nice. And they're nice, and they've got some videos. It's kind of a cute little project. Yeah, but just nice. That's yeah. as far as I can go. No, I haven't heard the album. Um, yeah, and, you know, Paul is. Not a great singer. He may be an authentic singer. Uh, you know, yeah. with the Clash, he was an awful singer, um, which is part of his charm. How awful he was. And, you know, yeah, well, he was perfect for Guns Brixton, right? I mean, you just wanted well, this yeah. voice of this thuggish beat. voice of the apocalypse. <laughs> the crooked beat, which is crooked beat crooked reggae. Uh, that was good. Uh, Red Angel Dragnet, you know, uh, you know, which is he's actually pretty good. Cosmo Vinyls, you know. De Niro taxi driver uh, parts are awful. <laughs> my, my buddy in, in Reading, uh, in England, he remixed it with the actual samples uh -huh. uh, from uh, Taxi Driver De Niro, and it's much better, just head and shoulders better. Interesting. Um, but uh, to the point, I could see Mick has a grace and an elegance about him where he'd be able to write his story without awe. Yeah, Mick's interesting because he doesn't, he is actually from that, came from that, so he just naturally evolved into something more elegant. Mick, Mick certainly evolved, uh, while Paul did too, you know. Yeah. Um, but so I, and Paul is like such a cool like artist, right? He's a painter and sure, kind yeah. of bohemian dude. Right. Great dresser. He like he's so cool. Well, Mick's a great dresser too. That, you know. They yeah. Were, well, Mick is like the sartorial, you know, wearing uh, hawks of Savile Row uh, kind of stuff. Whereas Paul is more like bohemian, 
cool, you know, always been like that. Yeah, he's got a bit more Cary Grant in him. He was always the good-looking guy in The Clash. And... Right, but early on, he was like the tough, the tough quiet guy, yeah. you know, the tough dude, don't mess with him, he's like, That's right. you know, um, whether that was actually him, yeah, it seemed like he had, you know, he's a skinhead in his youth, and, you know, you know, non-racist, but, you know, actually all his buddies were black, uh, yeah. Same as Mick, apparently. Um, that's just where they grew up, you know, just the neighborhood. The nature of, of Britain, you know. It's like I remember I saw Havana 3AM play one time in a park, in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Really? That was kind of fun. Like, it was like a lunchtime gig, and I, I took off uh, quite a long lunch to go enjoy that show, but that was worth it. Wow, you're one of, uh, like, 17 people in the world who actually saw Havana 3AM? Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Uh-huh. I can't even... I had the record, you know, the album on cassette, and I actually, I had started on CD a few yeah. months ago at Cheapo, and I thought about buying it. It was cheap, too. Yeah, I can't say I ever dig out Havana 3AM music, but it was kind of this cool at the time. It seemed like, you know, very Paul, you know, kind of rockabilly, punk, whatever. Yeah, I, I, they had a guitar player. I remember his name, Gary Myricki, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he had played with somebody, I don't know, maybe Brian Setzer or something like that. But he, he's a, a hot shot guitar player, you know, mm -hmm. rock and roll, rockabilly, and he yeah. had a real piercing tone. And that's all I remember, but I can't remember I, even who sang. I don't think Paul was a singer. I don't think he was. Uh, he might have been, he, but I don't remember now. No, I can't remember anything about the record. I, I remember it was nice. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That's all I can say about it. It was inoffensive it rocked probably pretty well right and we were desperate for any, grabbing anything related to the clash at that time right right so it's like you know well I'll listen to it a few times but you know uh, it wasn't like listening to Joe's first album you know which by now I think is great but you know boy that was a discipline it was just a sound how it was you know produced and mixed you know I'm like, God, this is Joe's first proper, you know. Which proper, one was that? Uh, earthquake Weather. Oh, I loved Earthquake Weather. I used to play it on my radio show all the time. Yeah, I, I liked it and liked it and liked it. Now I really think it's great, but it's just a horrible mix. I don't know why Sony, or, you know, isn't re-releasing it with a, a full remix, not remastered. My man Marky, Marky Dredd, the guy from Reading. Yeah. The wonderful work with uh, the Clashes catalog um, has remixed it. I haven't heard it because it's download, and I, I don't frequent the forum anymore. But I still lurk and, and read it. Did it have big '80s drums on it? Huh? Did it have were the drums too big in '80s on it? I forget. Uh, no, the drums are really, really wimpy sounding. Oh, okay. Uh, it's very live sounding. Yeah, I remember at the time really liking it. I did too. I did too, but I could tell even at the time, like where the, the vocals are completely buried. You know, oh, okay. it was very wordy. It's a very wordy album. It's oh, okay. cramming a million words and syllables. Yeah, uh, and been saving up, saving up a lot to say, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Now I love it, and it's not like you know, quote unquote, political, you know, lyricism like the Clash, right? as though the Clash were. I don't know, Billy Bragg or Tom Robinson. They weren't, you know. They, yeah. But I, they, oh, they were a political, but they were about as political as 
You mean the Clash? The Clash, I'm talking about. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. think, you know. Yeah, a lot of that was just uh, almost like marketing, right? Like, you know, calling your album Sandinista, exclamation point. Exactly, sure. You know. They, I mean, if you ask them about any of the Clash, about the Sandinista's manifesto, they wouldn't really be able to tell you, probably. Probably not. It was just, they were, they were hardcore romantics. Yeah. You know? And they had great. It's, and it's about rebellion against authority and whatever they perceived was akin to that. Sure, and the culture at large, not just big bad governments. Not just right, the that's right. And the USSR and our proxy, you know, governments. Uh, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like that. And it was know? observational, like Ivan meets GI Joe. Like this is just what's going on. And that what they do with Ivan meets. Yeah, Joel, they made a joke out of it. It's a funny song. Right. It's a jokey lyric. Exactly. Jokey it's it's having fun with the politic, poking fun at it a little bit. Uh, the people don't, I think, by now, I mean, real, real fans, uh, you, you know, understand how funny, how screamingly funny the Clash were. Uh, yeah, um, as were the Smiths. I don't get the Smiths. I don't get yeah. it. That's what I've heard. I mean, yeah. I like Johnny Marr. I've never been able to stand Morrissey. Now I can really can't stand him. He, he's up there with John Lydon as being a... Yeah. You know, but I, I know you don't like him, but I, I just, just to make the point that, you know, he, he has a reputation of like a very dour lyricist, especially yeah. with the Smiths, but they're actually like laugh out loud funny on another level, a lot of that stuff. I, I, I take your point. Uh, not that I've listened, but just from people whose, you know, music, or music, uh, opinions I respect, well, you being one of them, uh, have told me this repeatedly for years or told other people this yeah. like no the guy's actually really very funny and very clever and very well read and well versed on you know he's referencing obscure british you know kitchen sink dramas he grew up watching as a kid you know it's uh, chock full of references like that i've gathered this through the years you know I, not that i've ever you know deliberately listened so much you know um I've gathered this through the years from other people talking or quoting lines of his. Yeah. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I'm not a big fan of his his singing style. I love Johnny Marr's guitars. And actually, um, like Johnny Marr just came out with the greatest hits album like this week. And he's um, his stuff is really fun to listen to. He's a more listenable singer than Morrissey. And the guitars are just as great as the Smiths on a lot of his solo stuff. Yeah, I've heard some some tracks of his, and yeah, he is a great guitar player. I mean, truly great. Um, you know, in the tradition, but he's also got his own, you know, his own stamp, his own yeah. style. Yeah, and he's not, like, showing off. He's playing to the song and creating riffs and, you know, in that oh, classic I, I, songwriter kind of approach. Like, George Harrison was not a virtuoso, yeah. but he'd figure, he'd craft a solo and a riff that would work for the song. It's like that. Right, right, approach. right. Uh, which is the only Smith song I can really, can say I like, and it's all Johnny Marr. Yeah, it's the big one, what is it? The When Is Now, or what's it called? How Soon Is Now. Yeah, with that big, uh, you know, guitar figure. That's right. Is that the one I'm talking about? Is this big reverb? Yeah. Like big elephant. 
opening or something. And it's got this kind of Bo Diddley um, riff uh, in stereo, you know, going from the, the left to the right channel throughout the song, which was really unique at the time. Oh, I, I've, I've never listened that close. I've only ever heard on yeah, listen to it. Just for the guitar part, it's going da 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 da, and it's go it's going back and forth between the left and right channel with this Bo Diddley kind of riff. It's pretty amazing. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I just from memory, I, I I think I can feature what you're talking about. Yeah, it does have a, a kind of a shimmering quality to the uh, to the feel of it. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently John Lydon is still out there um, doing PIL gigs. Yeah, I guess they got a new record out, just came out like a month ago or something. And uh, I mean, you can't take away what the Pistols did. Or yeah, I was—I never really got into public public image. I, I just, you know, never did. Period. So I'll just leave it at that. But I respect what he's doing, trying to do with various iterations of. Yeah, I, remember, I was really into it at the time. Um, you know, it kind of like set the template for post-punk. For me, it wasn't even really about him. It was more like the bass, this dub bass of Ja Wobble with the cool guitar of Keith Levine. That's what was interesting to me about Public Image Limited. Johnny Rotten? What, you're critiquing Johnny Rotten's... Uh, you but know, it's thing. not like his voice was much different than in the Sex Pistols, right? Well, he was, yeah, it was something like this, and it was very unnerving. I, I suppose. Mean, yeah, it was, it was more yeah. like just playing up that mannerism. Yeah, you know, like when the Pistols did that, you know, the first reunion tour and they released, you know, the live album was really great. You know, the Filth and the Fury, uh, uh, you know, Chris Thomas engineered it. And, you know, it's wonderful. It's, they played the songs perfectly, note for note. No when was that? The Pistols. Yeah, when was that? Oh, 96, 97. Okay. They've done it. They did a couple of reunion tours. Yeah. Uh, but this is the first one and it came out, you know, on EMI, you know, major label thing. It's wonderful sounding. It's a great sounding record they played. You know, the entire record, a bunch of B-sides, and it's, it's great. But Lydon uses his public image voice. Oh, uh, okay. So it takes some getting used to, you know. Yeah. But that's the Pistols, that's Lydon, you know. They're, they're taking the piss, even though the Pistols were... A very conventional rock and roll band, you know. Yeah, that was the kind of the big joke about. It. I mean, they're still using E and A and D chords, and just like the Kinks were in '65, right? It's like just with a different attitude. Yeah, they were just you know without Lydon, they would just been another good rock British rock and roll band, you know. With a little more distortion, I suppose. And well, Steve Jones was you know. Johnny Thunders, you know, essentially. Paul Cook with Jerry Nolan, you know. They were yeah. essentially a British version of the Dolls. Uh, Glenn yeah. Matlock is a wonderful bass player. 
Ibrahim is certainly a lot better than Killer Kane on base. Uh, but, you know, they the country was full of great bands in 
these so little licks popping in and out, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's not just bar chords. Okay. Uh, I'll have to go back and listen to it. It's been a while. Yeah, right. You know, I've, yeah, I've got it, you know, pretty well internalized after all these years, after all these decades. Yeah. Now, I haven't listened to it maybe in, you know, a year or whatever. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. But he likes to play. Yeah. You know, that's the, right. The clever Yob, sort of a, you know, a, a Dickens character, you know. That's right. The, you know, like, oh, clever. Urchin, the artful you know. dodger street urchin from right. London. Yeah, exactly. Right. I wonder what you know, like you know, Mick and Paul, you know, Mick Jones and Paul Simmons think about this. You know, are they still mates? Were they ever mates? You know, you know, what, what does Shane McGowan think of this? You know, and, uh, you know, yes, Shane is still alive apparently. Uh, somehow. Is he? Yeah, I was just gonna ask you. Yeah, yeah. Talk about yeah. good jeans. Yeah, the new one, Julian Temple one. Yeah, his crock of gold. Yeah. Um, there's also, he did a Wilco Johnson movie. I don't know if you saw that. No, there's another blind spot I have. Um, uh, Dr. Feelgood. And you, that's worth seeing because you really see, like, you know, pub rock and the, what a huge influence Wilco was. He was really, like, crazy guy on stage. It really I, set the a lot of the foundation for British punk, his attitude. I've seen videos before, but... Here's the thing with Dr. Feelgood. I didn't think they had any songs. It's all Wilco, his guitar playing. Totally. He, he wasn't a singer. I thought his singer, or maybe they had multiple lead singers over the years, uh, were lame. The band was lame. Um, the songs were lame. And yeah, I mean, they weren't, uh, they were, you know, they're just kind of a straight-ahead, like, R&B type of pub rock band. But, you know, Wilco gave them the attitude well the guy that took a lot apparently is one of maybe my single favorite guitar player ever and we're talking you know, richard thompson or keith richards or johnny thunders whatever mick john um bill carter from the screwing blue messiahs who maybe they're one of my three favorite bands of all time and nobody knows about them oh, yeah i i and saw him live where in london yeah. Uh, supposedly a band that never performed a Duff gig ever in their brief, brief and the joke, I think that gig is the one we got We got there late and like we only saw like the last five minutes of the show and it was so powerful it was still like one of the great things I've ever seen <laughs> a huge like, compliment to them just that's how intimidating they were i apparently yeah you know they, yeah, they look scary and all that but uh 
they were scary. But it's kind of like the class. So it's like, oh, they're angry. I don't know if you can put one. They're a, a wall of magnificent sound. It's just a cinematic, it's almost ethereal in its, uh, uh, in its majesty. Uh, I, to me. Oh, yeah. Um, um, but go Bill ahead. Carter apparently was a huge Wilco fan. Oh, okay. He's a big Townsend fan, too. But, uh, uh, you know, he didn't play with a use a pick. So he's always, you know, his hand is always <laughs> busting open. He's, you know, bleeding and had to you know, use a, a fingernail polish to seal up his fingers, uh, you know, like that. But he didn't use a pick and apparently got that from Wilco. Uh, and so that know. approach apparently uh, really informed Bill Carter's uh, style of playing. And so I've all, I've always wanted to get into Wilco, and maybe I will one day. But the you know the videos, you know YouTube stuff I've seen, I just thought, what's there's no songs. This is like dumb, you know, like yeah, it's all it's a lot of um, attitude. But it's an, an interesting to watch it just because you kind of like get a feel for what that scene was about because we just weren't exposed to it here. Oh, sure, sure, for, for sure. And, you know, you got, you know, Wilco, you know, Wilco Johnson is, you know, he's a, uh, an incredible guitar player and unique and, you know, yeah, uh, and, you know, a very uh, impressive stage performer as well. Um, yeah. But, again, sadly, they're one of my musical blind spots, you know, it's like, band, you know, artists that you'll you think you should get into, you think you'd like, but you kind of like don't. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you have people like that, you know, in your, you know, in Jed world, you know, people you, you think you want to get into, you think you might like, but you just never get around to it or what you've heard. And there are, you know, things, uh, you know, films or TV series recently, uh, Stranger Things, I think is what I hear people talking about. Oh yeah, that's, that has all 80s music, good 80s music in it. That's very good. Yeah, it gave, you know, Kate Bush's, you know, running up the, That's right. running up the hill, you know, new life. And I think it, anyway, re-entered the charts. And like, it went to number one. In fact, um, she had the record for the biggest gap between number ones until now the Beatles now and then just eclipsed that. Oh, nice, nice. Because the last Beatles number one was... The Ballad of John and Yoko in 1969. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, Kate also was the first woman in UK history to have a number one with Wuthering Heights. Oh, interesting. She wrote, uh, wrote, arranged, and produced all by herself at the you know ripe old age of 18. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, like uh, John Lydon loves Kate Bush. Well, everybody loves Kate Bush. Everybody in the UK loves Kate Bush. Everybody yeah. has a certain age. Yeah. Dave Gilmore. Uh, uh, Dave Gilmore. Uh, Mike Scott. Uh, you know about the Dave Gilmore thing? Yeah. Well, he kind of like dis helped discover yeah, her? She's just playing in a bar band. I've heard some tapes and they're actually pretty good. Hearing Kate Bush at 17 singing Honky Tonk Woman is pretty funny. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he, you know, gave her the gave the connections and the boost and the, the confidence and uh, yeah. you know, her brother Patty was you know heavily instrumental in her career too. Mm -hmm. um, but 
but yeah, Gilmore. There's a version of uh, Running Up the Hill from uh, I think the first, very first Secret Policeman's Ball album. Uh, uh, She's on that with uh, Gilmore doing the guitar part. The oh, bang, okay. Except it's guitar, not a synth. Uh, and yeah, it's really great. Um, <laughs> there's another blind spot I have: Pink Floyd, a band. Of, Vaguely interested. I'm just so tired of the Dark Side of the Moon album. You know, that's probably still like in the Billboard Top 200. You know, after all these decades. That's actually another really interesting documentary I saw. It was about the two guys behind Hypnosis, which were the. It's an Anton Corbin film. The guys who designed all those album covers. Uh yeah, I think I heard about it. No, I haven't. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know Anton Corbin. Yeah. But anyway. Um, but the the two guys behind hypnosis, like one was like more business like, and one was like really crazy artistic, and alienating to people. But they were like the go to guys that, you know, Paul McCartney and Pink Floyd and everybody went to him for their album covers. To them. So have you ever speaking of Pink Floyd? Uh, I like to call him Pink Floyd just just because. Uh, have you ever tried? You're familiar with the Wizard of Oz. I've tried it. I've done it. Huh? I've done it. The syncing up of the soundtrack with the movie. Yeah. I've done it. Okay. So, verdict? Well, there's a couple issues. One, you know, the movie, I believe, is longer than the soundtrack. So you got that problem right there. Right. Um, yeah, you've got a few th interesting things that line up. Um, it's fun to do. But are, is it just serendipity that they happen to link up? Yeah, I think or? so. I, I believe that's what Pink Floyd has said, and um, that's what Alan Parsons has said, the engineer. Uh, and I tend to believe it. But it's fun to do. I mean, there are certain things that you know make it interesting to watch that do sync up, but it's not like it's constant. So it's not like, you know, Roger Waters had, you know, that in mind when writing the album. I don't think so. Okay, yeah. There's another guy apparently. But you actually, you know what you can do? You can go on YouTube and people have already synced it up for you. You can just watch it. I, I know, I just don't have the patience. Okay. I, 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 yeah, let me save you some time. It's not, the connection is tenuous. <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking you. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I have You're welcome. You just got two hours of your life back. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Anything I can do to help? Yeah, I need I needed them too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, just the concept of uh, the cross pollination of art. And, but when, when you get not in the conspiracy theory theory, you know, aspect, but just the sort of cross pollination. Yeah. Um, yeah, that stuff's always interesting.
really into at the time was the big music. Right? You too. Yeah, me too. Our big country, uh, Simple Minds, you know, yeah. Water Boys. And I was like really pissed off the replacements because you know, when I'd see them, like, why? You know, a couple times, and not every time. I certainly saw some brilliant, you know, early gigs, but you know, oh, they're drunk and what? I was just down on like real rock and roll. I wanted big, glorious music, <laughs> and uh, you know, so I was feeling my oats at that time in my life, and uh, uh, I hear things like uh, commonality themes, terms uh, in almost all new music that was coming out. I mean, I'd hear a commonality and a theme or something on the Stones' newest album at the time, Undercover, with Springsteen's Born in the USA and U2 and all these, oftentimes these things be the vaguely, uh, you know, militant, uh, left-leaning Christian uh, sensibility and... Uh, but I, you'd be hearing lyrics and common themes just constantly, like, oh, these guys you know, have been listening to you too, uh, you know, or whatever. You know, it was just some weird thing. And it was probably manufactured in my own mind, but I was thinking it was that there was a zeitgeist going on in the music, the, the music that I enjoyed, you know. <laughs> People as you know, diff, different in their themes as young U2 and you know uh, the Rolling Stones. You know, uh, like how could they be latching into some common zeitgeist, which uh, has sort of a vaguely uh, you know militant, uh, left-leaning, uh, you know, Christian in the true sense of the word, uh, you know, sensibility, which is you know U2 very young uh, at the time. Uh, yeah, I could see that, like the the Alarm, the Waterboys, the, the Rolling Stones, not so much, but definitely the big music part of it had that kind of feel. Well, yeah, but they, they, those bands, I understood it. And, and they, they toured with each other and they were friends, yeah. and, you know, uh, like that. And I, I understood that, but, but even other, other bands and, and artists, you know, yeah. who had nothing to do with that, that new crop, that Sort of new wave of uh, you know bands like you know, YouTube, Big Country, Simple Minds, The Alarm, The Water Boys, you know, Ice Cold Works, Echo and the Bunny Men, whatever. Uh, I'd be hearing it all the time, so I'd be thinking there was like a, a larger thing, like a, a militant, you know, uh, you know, something where the clash uh, had left off, you know. You know, something larger and something more, you know, spiritual, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I'd, I'd be hearing it, you know, like, you know, a little line or a, a, a lyric or even just one word. But some band that had nothing to do, like the Stones, that had nothing to do with that scene, you know, nothing to do with that music. And I, I can't, can't even give you an example now. But it happened with some regularity for maybe, you know, a year or two, uh, a year two or three or something like that. As in my own, probably just wishful, subconscious, you know, uh, going on. And we were also talking about, did you hear the replacements? Because we were talking about the replacements before. No. Oh. No, I didn't. 
did not hear it in the right decidedly, but it's not like I wasn't listening because I had to listen to Hoot Nanny and the Let It Be for yeah. the two years I lived with Katie, uh, you know, constantly because she played those records constantly. Okay. Yeah, she's huge music. No, I decidedly did not hear anything, any lyric, and I'd listen for it too. Yeah, yeah. So you were kind of like, you weren't bringing up the big music because it was similar to replacements. It's more like it was so different. Yeah. It was the whole vibe was different. Yeah, it was. And and musically too, uh, you know. Nowadays, uh, you know, the replacements are well, they got better as a band too. They're well, one of my favorites, one of my top fives. You know, period. You know, but from the first album to the last album, I just love it all. You know, I'm yeah. a fanboy. You know, um, but you know, this uh, ethereal, you know, poetic. You know, obviously people like Mike Scott and Bono and Stuart Adams and Mike. Absolutely. You didn't get a feeling that Paul Westerberg was reading C.S. Lewis at night. Yes, I've had to stop myself from laughing out loud. (laughs) But uh, but, that's true. But C.S. Lewis would be like the common thread. Yeah. You're spot on. He'd be like the common thread, you know, know, the literary sense for what, what I was hearing in all those different acts. It's funny, I um, recently joined a um, Replacements Facebook group, and the Replacements fashion style has not aged well when, like, they had their hair, like, just super long, and, like, they're all wearing, like, mismatched plaid. (laughs) Yeah, uh, right, but, well, was it fashion or style is a big difference. Uh, It was a clown show. They were clowns, yeah. Clowns. Exactly. Um, That's the word that came into my mind. It's like, oh, I get it. These were clowns. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sure if you asked them at the time, they would have said so too. Yeah. Um, you know, give you the finger. But uh, that's exactly the word that came to my mind when I saw that picture the other day. It's like, oh, I, I get it. It's a rock and roll clown show. Thanks everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. That was actually just part one. The conversation continues in the next episode. So we'll catch you on the other side.